By the way, my dog, he was like asleep for five hours and now he wants out. Hold on. <laughs> I thought I could ignore it, but he's crazy. Glenn, um, this was the work from home example right here. This was yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, next it's going to be my kids saying, can I have a snack? Yes, you can have a snack. Hello and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. This week, we're pleased to be joined by Glenn Kelman, the CEO of the tech-oriented real estate brokerage Redfin, which is headquartered right here in Seattle. Hey, Glenn, thanks for being with us. Hi, how you doing? Thanks for having me on the show. Big fan. Long-time <laughs> listener, first-time caller, I think. No, you've been on before, Glenn. Oh, maybe this is the second time. <laughs> it's great to have you on, Glenn. And you know, you are just off of your quarterly earnings, so we know this is a busy day, and we're grateful to you for taking the time. And we want to talk about the housing market, jumping off from earnings, and also an interesting announcement that Redfin made this week related to the climate and home sales and a little bit about return to work. But let's start, John, you actually covered the earnings. And so you have a really good sense for where Redfin is as of the latest quarter. So why don't you go ahead and jump in? Yeah, Glenn, it's always fun listening to your earnings call. You bring such enthusiasm to it. You know, we love listening to earnings and getting those results. And uh, your calls are always super fun and highly quotable. One quote stood out to me, and I want you to elaborate a little bit on this. You mentioned that buyers and sellers are now mating in the wild. Can you explain what you meant by that and what's going on? Because I think it does speak to the bigger picture yeah. of what's ha happening right now in housing. Sure. Well, it's just been so hard to put a deal together over the past six months. The bidding wars have been crazy, not just in the usual coastal markets, but everywhere. So Tulsa, Oklahoma, Boise, Idaho have had 20, 30, 40 offers on a property. And as a result, it's just been hard on our real estate agents and really hard on our home buying customers. So we saw a step back in demand after Memorial Day. We were actually somewhat worried about it. But then in July, we've really seen an increase in sales because it has just been easier to put deals together. So what the market really needed, it finally got, which is a little bit of inventory and maybe a little less demand. So I think the housing market is just on more sustainable footing than it was. And you said even in the call, there's some markets where you're seeing prices even drop, like Bend, Oregon and Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. what, what's your prognosis across the board? And I guess let's also talk about what you're seeing in Seattle. Uh, well, what we said, just to be even more precise, because Taylor Marr, one of our housing economists, would give me grief if I'm not completely precise. The percentage of listings that drop their price has increased, and it's increased the most in places where Californians were migrating en masse. So Phoenix, Arizona, Bend, Oregon, Boise, Idaho have seen more price drops. And what has really changed is it used to be the sellers were very aggressive. They were pricing in three or four months of appreciation into their asking price. And now I think some are saying we might be at the peak. We used to tell sellers that you should just get your house on the market now. Don't worry about fixing it up. The market is so hot that you should just strike while the iron is hot. Whereas today we are telling sellers that you ought to wait and fix it up to get top dollar because buyers are being more selective. So in a really, really crazy market, even the ugly houses go like that. And in today's market, I think the good houses are going very fast 
but buyers are being a little picky about some of the other ones. And we're starting to see at least a few listings set. And this is a more sustainable real estate market in your view, I presume, than what we were experiencing six months ago. Sure. We would get on the call with the street and they would say, do you think 26% year over year price growth is sustainable? And I don't know how it possibly could be. The only trend that really made it possible was the fact that so many Californians were moving to Ohio with monopoly money. I know that's where you're from, John. So even when prices double in Columbus, Ohio, somebody who's used to paying a million dollars for a shack in LA says, it looks good to me. And so I think that sustained some of the price increases, but the people who lived in those towns were really having a hard time buying a place. I'm curious on that migration pattern because you've mentioned places like Boise and Columbus, Ohio, but what is it meant for Seattle where GeekWire is based, where Redfin is based? It, Seattle seems like a more unusual market where we actually have had, from the numbers I've seen, an increase in tech migration specifically yeah. into the city. So what's going on here in your view? Well, I think in part I've gotten my comeuppance because I've been an advocate for a state income tax to fund science and math education. I think Bill Gates Sr., got behind that maybe six or seven years ago was at 1095. And even when there was a head tax brouhaha, I thought that tech ought to step up and pay some kind of local tax. And now uh, the city has started making noises about doing some of the same things and asked me if I would support it. And it's really not up to me anymore because it's our employees who are deciding where Redfin's headquarters are going to be. We now have a thousand headquarters. There are people who have moved all over the country. So I think it's taken a little air out of the real estate balloon here in Seattle. But it's not like California because we still don't have many state and local taxes. And so there's just been this race to the bottom across the country. If you look at Texas, I think for every person who leaves, five people are moving in. Florida, for everyone who leaves, seven are moving in. For all low-tax states, the ratio is four to one. Um, and it just makes it really hard for cities to find the money to deal with COVID and the housing crisis that it's created. And there's so many people who are unhoused, who are struggling to get medical care, who can't go to shelters to deal with Black Lives Matter and all the social unrest and police costs that that has entailed. So I think the cities are just really struggling with how are we going to raise the money when as soon as we raise taxes, businesses and their employees go one county over, go one state over. Is that something you're looking at with Redfin or as you have a more distributed workforce? Like what, what's your thought on being in Seattle proper? I love Seattle. I mean, this is the place that educated me as a child. I love California. That's where I went to school for college. And I don't want to be a turncoat and leave the state that helped us build this great business that educated so many of our workers. So I am very committed. But what I've tried to tell some of the politicians who have contacted us about this is it's not just up to me anymore. It also is up to each employee who is saying, well, I want my headquarters, my attic to be in Missouri or somewhere else. And so it's given me a moment of pause when I've been a pretty steady supporter of some kind of collaboration between business and government to make sure that we take care of everyone and that the wealth of tech reaches the rest of Seattle it's given even me a moment of pause. Um, Matt McElwain, and I hope you're listening. This is my comeuppance um, about raising taxes here, just because I think it's got to happen at the federal level when people are so much more mobile than they used to be. And of course, Matt McElwain is with Madrona Venture Group. And John, you can explain the reference that Glenn just made. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks, Todd. 
Well, Matt <laughs> is a uh, a low uh, a proponent of low or no taxes in order to drive uh, business and innovation. I mean, to put it in a nutshell. And that's interesting in part because Madrona is one of the investors, was one of the original investors in Redfin, which we may talk about a little bit later. I don't think they're an investor anymore. But yes, uh, Paul Goodrich, the great man who put the first money in to Redfin or the first real institutional money into Redfin, who was my chairman and friend for many years, I will always be loyal to him. He had the vision when nobody else did. And I will say Paul Goodrich was the person who gave the toast at the Madrona 25th, actually 26th anniversary party this past week. Yeah, they had to delay it a year. Glenn, I didn't see you there. Oh, man, I didn't know you were taking attendance, John. (laughs) (laughs) I say the same thing to Madrona that I say to you. Every once in a while when I don't come to a GeekWire event, I say, well, I've got these kids and I'm trying to do my job. And I always worry that I'm not being a good CEO and then that I'm not being a good dad. And so I just stop doing everything else. I barely have time to go to the bathroom. You had earnings this week, so you, you're off the hook. Well, not only that, but he had a dog to let out. <laughs> yeah, right. that dog. Right. Well, well, let me ask a quick question about earnings, Glenn. Um, yeah. You posted $471 million in revenue. That was a, a jump of 121% over the same period last year. Now, we should say this time last year, I think you, as you mentioned on, on the call, the, the real estate industry was going through what you called a near-death experience. So it was right when COVID was kind of coming in full full throttle. But the other part of this is that your losses increased. And I just want to ask yeah. about that. When is Redfin going to become a profitable organization? Well, I get to dodge the question because, of course, we don't make forward-looking statements like that. But the way I look at it is that the brokerage is a profitable entity and it allows us to invest in growing entities that lose money. So we bought RentPath out of bankruptcy, which was a major drag on earnings, both because of its losses, but also the transaction fees. And then we have a bunch of other businesses that are still fairly nascent. And so I would like to make money as soon as possible. Um, But I think what will really drive it is if you have businesses that stop growing 50 or 100% year on year, the mortgage business, if it were growing 30% year on year, Redfin now, if it were growing 40% year on year, then you say, well, show me the money. That's not a little baby anymore. That's a grown-up business with a grown-up growth rate, and it should be throwing off profit. But when somebody says, we can double every single year, um, and the street is very forgiving on profits, You've got to take share. And I think what's really hard about running a property technology company, whether it's me or Eric Wu or Rich Barton, is that there's just so much capital in the space. I think we're all sitting there at the poker table wanting to take some chips back. But when all of us can borrow $500 million or a billion dollars with no coupon, where basically there's no interest on some convertible debt, everybody's just pouring a lot of money into the market, playing a winner-take-all game or a winner-take-most game. And that just makes it really hard you know, to squeeze a lot of profit out of the business. And it makes it really hard to do anything except to keep pushing more chips out to the middle of the table. So uh, sometimes I feel like, man, this is crazy. I'd rather take it easy because the growth is stressful. And at other times, I just feel like a great white shark. You know, let's eat another surfer. John, I love it. How many years have you been asking Glenn that question? I know. I mean, I know. I know. Well, obviously, we've had profitable quarters and we've had unprofitable quarters, but um, usually in the second quarter and the third quarter, we make more money. 
and in this case, just rent path and um, some delayed media expenses weighed us down. We did ads later in the year than we usually do. Usually we turn off advertising probably by June or July. Yeah. Glenn, that was my comment on John, not my comment on your business. Oh, no worries. <laughs> you should keep asking. <laughs> I know, I know. Just give him a hard time. Eric Wu, the CEO of Open Door, and Rich Barton, the CEO of Zillow Group, that just to uh, frame those two references you made. But to your point, Glenn, Redfin is a property technology company, and that's very much how you've positioned yourself. I'm curious how the real estate business has changed as a result of the last 18 months as it relates to technology. You mm -hmm. mentioned that you know inventory is a little bit easier to come by at this point. Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of technology and how that's changing the transaction or the marketing? Sure. Well, I think there's three or four trends. Uh, the first is that more people are virtually touring. And some of that was because they didn't actually want to set foot in somebody else's house. But now it's more because they're moving across the country and they don't necessarily want to get in a plane. So it's just more common to put in a bid and actually have it accepted before you see the house. Sometimes uh, half of our buyers are getting their offers accepted and then seeing the house and the seller's fine with it too, because they don't necessarily want everybody walking through the place. The second is that because more moves are cross country, um, it's actually helped a business like ours. You call your local real estate agent who might be your uncle or your buddy or the person who sold your last place if you're moving across town, but you Google when you're moving across the country because you just don't know anybody in Montana. And so just ranking higher in Google, having all the agent reviews and all the rest has helped us. And then I think the third thing is that there's just been a huge tailwind on iBuying. And that's driven first by an iBuying. I know you're just going to have to explain it later, so I'll save you the trouble. iBuying is where we pay cash for a house and let somebody move on. Open Door does it. Zillow does it. OfferPad does it. Redfin does it. And some of that is just that it's just a good time to be owning houses. The longer it takes us to sell them, which used to be a risk that we really worried about, the more money we make because the market is going up. And some of it is because I think you know people don't mow their lawn anymore. They don't really do anything that's hard anymore. They just pay someone else to deal with it. And that's what they're doing with the house. And so that easy liquidity you know, costs you a little bit of upside. If you list your house, you're going to sell it really fast. And that's still what most people are going to do. But I think iBuying has taken off more than we could have hoped. Yeah, it's interesting, Glenn, because I was just listening to a portion of the Zillow earnings call, yeah. and Rich Barton, the, the CEO of Zillow Group, was saying the same thing. He's 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 trying to reimagine how big this industry can become. The, meaning, the eye buying component of the real estate industry has your view of it shifted in the last six twelve months. It has some. I mean, I just remember. In April of 2020, when we had all those houses on our books and we were issuing an 8K every single week, which is this special update to investors about liquidity to make sure that no one thought we were going to go bankrupt. I just said, what am I doing? What are we doing owning all these houses? And now it's worked out really well. So sometimes I worry that that stress test that everyone was waiting for iBuying to go through was sort of a fake stress test because it was such a V-shaped downturn where almost right away we got bailed out. You know, these houses that we were worried we couldn't sell were really easy to sell later on. Um, and then I think the ease of it has really appealed to folks, but I still am in a different place than Rich. Uh, and I worry about being at a different place than Rich, the CEO of Zillow, because he's such a smart person. My take is that most people want the money. Um, that they put too much money into the house, too much work. They want to capture the upside that when you get a 
letter in the mail saying, we've got a cash offer. You know that you're going to give up some of the upside. And so the only way I can really feel good about it as a business for Redfin is if we always give people both choices. Because if we are a principal in the transaction, if we're a counterparty where you know the seller is on one side of the table and we're on the other side of the table, and if our offer is low and we make a bunch of money, you know, do we feel good or bad about that? Um, was it an honest mistake or were we really being sharp? I can feel good about that because we're always going to tell them, and here's what we try to sell it for. And if you want the most money, that's what you ought to do. If you just are trying to get out of Dodge, you know, we'll give you the cash offer. But really, I think most people are going to continue to broker a sale because they need every penny for their next house. Yeah. And Glenn, you mentioned this V-shaped recovery a couple of times on the earnings call this week. And I'm curious, I mean, that's both a blessing and a curse to some degree because you recovered much faster than you imagined coming out of a period where things were really bad at this time last year, but that's caused some stress on the business. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Well, almost out of principle, we employ our real estate agents and the challenge that creates is that volatility is your enemy. So when there's a huge downturn, you have these fixed costs. We had to furlough some people. It was just a terrible time. For those people, but for everyone else too, we were able to bring all of them back, or at least to offer all of them jobs. About 85% came back. And then when demand shoots through the roof, you're limited in your capacity because you don't want to have a bunch of idle capacity on your books as employees. Whereas a traditional brokerage just has a huge number of agents who wish they could meet more customers and close more sales. Most Redfin agents are fairly well utilized, and that just created a lot of stress where recruiters busted their tails bringing people in. We onboarded a bunch of people. And you just always worry about a bozo explosion in those situations. Sometimes the street has criticized Redfin because we grow 30 35% a year. And my argument has always been that when we try to grow faster, we just screw up the customer experience. We want every single customer to have this fantastic experience, like almost any company. And if you put that first, you just have to limit your growth. And in this situation starting in the third quarter, I think it was the first quarter in 16 years where we lost market share. And we lost market share even though website traffic was through the roof because we just didn't have enough employees to handle it. And and that's when we said, all right, we, we got to hire like crazy. And we're still having some chickens come home to roost from that. Like any company that goes through blitz scaling, once I heard Reed Hoffman, the author of the, this blitz scaling book, talk about it. And my question for him when he was on stage is just, you know, once you start, how do you ever stop? Because when that truck is driving down a dirt road and all the windows are open, the air's fine as long as you keep going 40 miles an hour. But if you have to hit the brakes, you know, the whole cab fills with like gravel and dirt and twigs and stuff. And so I think we had to grow really fast. And it just put everybody through a lot of stress when they were already feeling a lot of stress because they've got a dog and kids and a pandemic and they worry about getting sick. They also worry about the climate increasingly. And I want to talk about that right after the break, the connection between climate and housing and a new feature that Redfin is introducing with home listings. That's coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. 
Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. And our guest this week is Glenn Kelman, the CEO of Redfin. They just posted their earnings today. As John said, they were up 121% in revenue to $471 million. And a lot of their numbers really speak to many of the trends in the housing market coming out of the pandemic. But Glenn, this announcement this past week about the climate risk report, this whole notion of letting folks know about the risk from the climate at the homes they live in or that they might want to buy is interesting. And it actually plays into a little bit of a debate that John and I have been having about the relative merits of Seattle and Washington State versus California, uh, where I grew up. So we have that. Oh, where, where in California, Todd? Far northern California, about 100 miles north of Sacramento in a small town called Orland. Did you smoke a lot of pot? <laughs> no, I didn't. Is that where? They, or no, that's more like Humboldt. That's out on the coast. That's yeah, that's, yeah. that's way far. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Is no, it you, close Glenn, to paradise? Didn't know me growing up. Indeed, Orleans down in the valley, and they've had a big influx from the campfire in 2018. Yeah. 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 Uh, so and other fires as well. So tell us about this climate measure that you've added uh, as part of a partnership, and and why this was an important thing to do. Well, it's important because one in five homeowners now feels that the value of their home has been damaged because of fire risk, flood risk, hurricane risk. It's important because that's asymmetrical. You know, people who are people of color or who have less money often are forced to live in these neighborhoods that easily flood or that are at fire risk. And it's important because in this latest migration where Americans are moving all over the country, mostly they're moving to places that have more climate-related risks. They're going to Houston, which is getting hit by hurricanes and, and tropical storms all the time. They're going to Florida, where it's even worse. Um, they're going to a bunch of dry places where the heat is just insane. And so you know, they buy the house and then they realize they can't get fire insurance or they can't get flood insurance or that it's very expensive. And so we just needed to bake that in to their initial home search so they realized what was going on. And it's a good example of a partnership that solved a problem that we actually tried to solve another way, um, but just a dumber way. I was really interested in developing a climate score for every house that talked about your contribution to climate change, whether you were using a lot of space, whether it required a lot of driving, whether it had solar panels and stuff like that. But it turns out nobody cares about whether they're contributing to climate change. They're just worried about whether they're going to get screwed by climate change. And so that idea was a dead duck. And then this partner came ahead and, or came forward and said, why don't, you, um, why don't you do this instead? And so we did. And it took us a little while to get it up on the side. I wish we'd done it a little faster. But that team has been working their tail off on all sorts of other things to make Redfin search better. So we did it when we could. There's the problem right there, Glenn. Nobody cares about what they're putting out. It's it's like, what, how am I yeah. impacted? Not yeah, how yeah, am I yeah. impacting? You're ruining my vacation is the only thing I'm worried about. <laughs> I know. It drives me crazy. Wow. Glenn, wow. when I saw this news, uh, I immediately thought of another feature from Redfin. And I'm curious if you know which one I thought about. No. Really? It was your first acquisition. Walk score. Yeah. Is this the walk score of like for climate? I mean, that's kind of how I envisioned it when, when I first saw I, I this. I think it's how the people who built it envisioned it. And we should say walk score is a feature that allows you to determine how walkable your neighborhood is based on your, your house location. Yeah. And it was built by a bunch of hippies in Seattle. And then I met them and like immediately, like we liked each other so much. Redfin didn't really have the money to do an acquisition and we didn't even have the guts to do it. But because 
there was so much chemistry between the two teams and we believed so much in the idea of walkable neighborhoods, a new kind of city and all the rest. I mean, the sad thing about the migration that we're going through right now is that mostly it's a migration away from walkability. Um, people have really decided they wanted space, some because of pandemic anxiety, some just because they don't have to commute into work. So maybe there will be less driving overall, just since there's less commuting into work, but more driving to go to a restaurant or a grocery store. The places where people are buying houses right now are far out. And we were always trying to nudge them a little bit toward more density. I think we need to revisit your original idea as a startup. Somebody does, not we. Somebody does. We as a society need to go back to that and figure out how to make it work. What could you do to incentivize people to care? Well, I think the first thing is just to make it easy to see that when you're doing something that's good for the environment or bad for the environment. I really worry that ignorance can be bliss for people, that maybe they don't want to know. But I think if you give people a reason to invest in solar panels for their home and believe that they can get a higher price for their home in a subsequent sale, that could just rationalize the conversion of lots of properties to have more density where you know, you've got an accessory dwelling unit or to have solar panels or to have better insulation or to have double walled windows or whatever it is. But I think it's just hard because this is such a longer conversation, Todd, around I know. shipping features that would make money for Redfin and shipping features that would make the world a little better. That's why somebody else needs to do it. <laughs> now you're really goading me. Uh, maybe we'll do it. Get your friends over at Madrona to uh, to invest in that one. Glenn, big picture on just climate change and housing. What What is the trend line you're, you're seeing? How is this going to play out? I mean, you're going to see... I'm just curious. I know that's a real big picture question. I'm just curious how it is going to impact the housing market and where people live in the next 20, 30 years in your view. Well, my sense is that people have mostly been oblivious to climate change when they choose where to live and that it's the insurance companies that are finally saying, no, you can live in the middle of a fire zone or in the eye of a hurricane, but we're not going to insure it. And if they can't get the property insured, the owners can't get a mortgage. And so eventually, I think there are going to be some groups of homes that basically become unbuyable. And it's because they can't be insured. They're not good collateral for loans. So if you're going to move there, you're going to pay cash and live there at your own risk. I imagine climate change ghost towns. Is that a possibility? Um. I think possibly. I mean, I just, I guess sometimes you walk through the airport and you see this kid holding a baseball bat and he's up to his elbows in water and it says, this is what's going to happen with climate change. And I think that's actually the wrong image. Um, You know, Al Gore made a, a movie about climate change where he talked about some of this and much of that movie has been vindicated. But I think what really happens is your house gets its roof torn off every 18 months by a hurricane, or the air quality is terrible for four months out of 12 every year. You know, I was recently asked, where would you move to avoid an apocalypse? And my reaction was, there is an apocalypse. It's just unfolding slowly. Um, If you had told me when I was a kid growing up in Seattle that for a month or two, I wouldn't be able to jog outside, as was the case either last year or the year before. I just would have said, what hellscape is this? The idea of a 
of a fire and a drought in Seattle, of all places. And obviously, that's a problem now every year in California. And it's just asymmetrical. You know, we act as if it hasn't happened. It just hasn't happened to rich people yet. But poor people, the people who are living in certain neighborhoods of Houston and certain parts of Miami, they're the ones who are suffering the consequences right now. What was your answer when you decided the place you would pick if you were going to live to avoid that apocalypse? Um, right here. Seattle, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it is when you look at some of the climate change maps, it's like yeah. northern Michigan, Minnesota, and, and western Washington. So that's going to impact housing there, don't you think, in those types of places? Uh, over the long haul, I, I don't know, though. I, like right now, I just see people moving for home prices and space and three-car garages and low taxes. Um. And, and as I said, I think it's the actuarials at insurance companies that are being a little more careful about it. So I don't know. And I've talked to builders where I've said, hey, you know, if you put more solar panels on your on your new construction, we would promote that. Would that encourage you? And they, they've been pretty skeptical that you can get a buyer to pay even $500 more for a home with solar panels. And, and maybe that'll change, but... Um, I don't know. People get into a weird mindset when they're about to get married, they have a baby, they're looking for a job. They're just in an altered state when their whole life is in transition. And I think their needs become you know, very close to the base of Maslow's hierarchy for shelter and, and a sense of safety. So I, I feel very mixed about it. Like if you just look at the data, a lot of people are moving to places that are really going to be hit hard by climate. Glenn, I don't mean to keep going back to this, but I've got an answer to this. this oh, give it to me. You've been yeah. dealing with. Yeah. So here, here's the deal. I input my address into climate check, which is the people that you're partnering with at Redfin for this feature. And then I input John's address. And so I'm going to sit here and demonstrate the dynamic that's going to make this startup take off. John, you are four percentage points worse than I am in your place in Greenwood than I am in Ballard. So what if- Yeah, but my walkability score is way better than yours. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> this is such nerd smack talk. I should say though, what if you could incentivize people with like a point off of their uh, closing costs? I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm getting too complicated and going down in the weeds there. I mean, the answer to that is that when we give people money back at the closing, it doesn't work very well as an incentive. Our listing incentive where we charge less to list the house works really well. The home buyer incentive we have, like it's almost just a pet project of mine that's lasted 16 years. Um, <laughs> it c customers really appreciate it once they get it, but they usually didn't realize they were going to get it until they do, yeah. despite our best efforts to educate them. All right. When we come back, we will talk about some of the latest developments in the return to work by Redfin and other companies. There were some interesting twists this week, and we'll tell you about them and talk about them with Glenn Kelman from Redfin coming up next. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, 
As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. It's great to be joined this week by Glenn Kelman. Glenn, I think you're one of the most quotable CEOs we cover by far. You may oh. be the most. All right. Yes. And that's good in our book. That's a lot of pressure now. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Just be yourself. Just be yourself. So, Glenn, the jaw-dropping news for me and I think for many other folks this week was the word that Amazon is delaying until January 2022, its return to work by its employees. I know Redfin has also changed its plans in this front, but left things a little more open-ended. You're leaving the date undefined at this point, but promising employees that you'll give them at least 30 days notice when you expect them to be back in the office on a regular basis. Where are we? I know we're almost two years into this thing. Uh, we're in limbo. I know. It kind of sucks. It does. I, I don't know where to start. First of all, Redfin is very politically diverse. So the Seattle employees are mostly progressive, but we now employ real estate agents in almost every state in the country. There are people who voted for Trump and people who voted for Biden. There are people who are pro-vaccine. There are people who are anti-vaccine. And what we see is just a simple measure to protect the safety of our employees is more fraught than that. And yet at the end of the day, it isn't. So we acquired RentPath, an Atlanta-based business that has a different constituency than our Seattle-based business. And they felt differently initially about this vaccine mandate that we're not going to have people back in the office who aren't vaccinated. And then the conversation just really turned to, well, are you willing to accept responsibility for the safety of the employees who come into the office and may be infected by someone who is unvaccinated? I really try to respect everyone's political views and the independence of your medical decisions, but it is my job. Like the most simple responsibility I have is to keep people safe. And mostly when you're programming a computer, it isn't that dangerous. But for our real estate agents, they walk into houses with strangers where they could get hurt. And we have to take that seriously, especially since people sign up on the web uh, for those tours. And now, you know, we have to make decisions about when it's safe to meet a customer, when it's safe for a group to congregate. And that has been more controversial than I thought it would be because we have somebody in a different state who is planning a big office reunion and just can't believe that we're the party poopers here in our little precious blue Seattle. Mm. We have people who come to the office because they're in a one-bedroom apartment with four kids and a dog and they just need a quiet place. Or we have some employees who have to come in to open envelopes and process checks or something crazy like that. And we have just said, if you're coming in, you have to be vaccinated and you have to wear a mask, even if you are vaccinated in all the open spaces. And that was one point of controversy. I think obviously we could have been much more aggressive there and said that all of our employees who are meeting customers need to be vaccinated. And we haven't done that. And as you know, I think you've interviewed my wife. She's a scientist. And so it's hard for me not to get drawn into a scientific argument and just say, listen, there's a lot of data that shows you're much less likely to get seriously ill. You're much less likely uh, to get infected and convey it to someone else. But we also need to create space for people with different beliefs. And that's what every CEO is going through. Glenn, for those employees that are coming into the office and when you do... Mm -hmm. um, promote everyone coming back, hopefully yeah. sooner rather than later. And if you're mandating vaccines for those that are coming into the office, how are you going to verify that, if at all? Is it just a, a pledge by the person or do you check 
vaccination cards? Right now, it's an attestation. So they fill out an online survey where they say, when was your first shot? When was your second shot? And was it Pfizer or Moderna or something else? We could have gotten more aggressive about it, but uh, we felt like that was what we could do quickly. Because as I said, people are in the Redfin office today. There are some people who are there and we just decided that we need to do something right away. We should say that Amazon so far is a little bit of an outlier. Uh, Microsoft announced this week that they will push it back to October in terms of the full return to work. Google and Apple are in a similar vein. Those companies are mandating vaccines for those who come into the office. So in that way, Glenn, you're similar in terms of your policy. Hey, Glenn, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I love GeekWire. I hope everybody subscribes. (laughs) Thanks, Glenn. Talk to you later. Thanks, Glenn. Bye-bye. It's always fun to talk with Glenn. I was serious. He is just one of the more colorful CEOs that we get to cover. Yeah, always surprised what you're going to get with him. And interesting, too, I hadn't thought about the climate change, uh, the housing lens through the insurance companies that are backing these homes. So that that is could be an interesting change uh, and something to watch. Well, John, before we go, I wanted to give a shout out to a longtime GeekWire podcast listener, Benjamin Hand, who emailed me after he listened to our recent interview with Jeff Wilkie, the former Amazon consumer CEO, who is now backing a next generation manufacturing firm. And we had a great conversation with Jeff and his business partner about that. And I encourage anybody who missed that show to go back and listen to it. But at the beginning, Jeff Wilkie mentioned that the first thing he did after he left Amazon, first thing of note for him career-wise, was to learn how to code in Python. And Jeff Wilkie was just extremely upbeat about what he learned, how he learned it, and the insights it gave him into what it really takes to build products in this day and age. And so Ben, our listener, asked, okay, well, what service did he use? What platform, what class did he use? Because clearly Jeff Wilkie liked it. So I double-checked, followed up with him, and it turns out Jeff Wilkie used the Python portion of the Code Academy data scientist curriculum. So I wanted to give a shout out to Ben for asking that question. And I imagine others might have had that same question or perhaps might benefit from Jeff Wilkie's endorsement, at least by usage of that platform. So John, when we have time in between our reporting on all these earnings, we'll no doubt be jumping in and learning Python. (laughs) Probably not going to be the first thing I do after I retire. (laughs) Hey, well, that's what makes Jeff Wilkie, Jeff Wilkie, I guess. All right. Good stuff. Thanks for listening, everybody. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to get all of our stories. Don't forget to check out our other GeekWire podcasts, Day 2, about everything Amazon, and the GeekWire Health Tech podcast, where we just had a great review of Amazon's COVID-19 test. It's at-home test, what it's like, how it works, how it doesn't work, and talk to an expert about it. It was a great episode. You can catch that on the GeekWire Health Tech podcast. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thanks for listening to GeekWire.